Good evening. Trump says not my fault as he marvels at his border wall in Texas. The FBI announces it will seek sedition charges for the riot at the United States Capitol. Trump's mental illness, a top psychologist says it's catching. And the NYPD stalls on police reform. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, January 12th, 2021. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo canceled his Europe trip at the last minute on Tuesday after Luxembourg's foreign minister and top European Union officials declined to meet him. Pompeo, a close ally of Trump, had sought to meet Jean Asselborn in Luxembourg, a small but wealthy NATO ally, before meeting EU leaders in Brussels. Appalled by the violence last week in Washington, Asselbrom had called President Donald Trump a criminal and a political pyromaniac. Pompeo, a member of Trump's rapidly dwindling cabinet, also used today to bring more sanctions against Iran, accusing the country with no evidence of helping al-Qaeda, the group blamed for the 9-11 attacks, and no friend of the Iranian government. In recent days, Pompeo has declared Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism, again with no evidence, and declared the Houthis of Yemen a terrorist group, adding to the humanitarian crisis in the country under attack by Iran's rival, Saudi Arabia. In the United States, Pompeo's boss, President Trump, was on the border, was in the border town of Alamo, Texas, to marvel at his wall. Although only a few miles were built and Mexico didn't pay for any of it, Trump claims it was a success. He also took a moment to to deny responsibility for the attack on the Capitol. All of the work we did in designing the wall, we got it exactly as you wanted it. Everything, including your protective plate on top. I say, why did we put that? And they said, we need it for extra protection, climb plate. And uh, we have everything you want. It's steel, it's concrete inside the steel, and then it's rebar, a lot of heavy rebar inside the concrete. And it's as strong as you're going to get and strong as you can have. But we gave you 100% of what you wanted. So now you have no excuses. I didn't want you to have any excuses. And you set records. uh, And uh, we can't let uh, the next administration even think about taking it down, if you can believe that. Uh, I don't think that will happen. You are very proud of it. And you're proud of the work you did because we really designed it together. Before we begin, I'd like to say that free speech is under assault like never before. The 25th Amendment is of zero risk to me, but will come back to haunt Joe Biden and the Biden administration. As the expression goes, be careful what you wish for. The impeachment hoax is a continuation of the greatest and most vicious witch hunt in the history of our country and is causing tremendous anger and division and pain far greater than most people will ever understand, which is very dangerous for the USA, especially at this very tender time. And now I'd like to briefly address the events of last week. Millions of our citizens watched on Wednesday as a mob stormed the Capitol and trashed the halls of government. As I have consistently said throughout my administration, we believe in respecting America's history and traditions not tearing them down. We believe in the rule of law, not in violence or rioting. And Trump today at Alamo, Texas. In breaking news, Representative Liz Cheney, a Republican, says she will vote to impeach Trump. 
and the man photographed sitting in House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office chair during last week's Capitol insurrection has made his initial federal appearance in Arkansas. 60-year-old Richard Barnett of Gravette, Arkansas, appeared before U.S. Magistrate Judge Aaron Weiderman in Fayetteville on Tuesday to hear the charges against him. Among them is the charge that he unlawfully entered a restricted area with a lethal weapon, in this case a stun gun. Barnett also is charged with disorderly conduct and theft of public property. And convicted on all charges, including the new lethal weapon count, he could be sentenced to more than 11 years in federal prison. Barnett will remain in federal custody at the Washington County Detention Center in Fayetteville until a virtual detention hearing Friday when a judge will decide whether to grant him bond. And in Washington, D.C., the FBI says it warned police agencies of potential violence ahead of last week's invasion of the Capitol building and assault on officers and potentially members of Congress. The Department of Justice says it's weighing sedition charges, a little-used law targeting people who try and overthrow the government by force against people who are being arrested in connection with the Capitol invasion. U.S. Attorney Michael Sherwin says initial misdemeanors are being upgraded to felonies. Again, only days after this event happened, we had the grand jury in in the District of Columbia up. It was booked throughout the entire day. And and for several hour upon hour, prosecutors in our office presented felony cases, significant felony cases related to civil disorder, related to the possession of destructive devices, related to the possession of semi-automatic weapons that are illegal to possess in the district. So, again, I just want to clarify that the initial charges we're filing, these some of these misdemeanors, these are only these are only the beginning. This is not the end. The FBI working with the U.S. attorney's offices across the country and the crux of those being in D.C., we're looking at significant felony cases tied to sedition and conspiracy. Just yesterday, our office organized a strike force of very senior national security prosecutors and public corruption prosecutors. Their only marching orders from me are to build seditious and conspiracy charges related to the most heinous acts that occurred in the Capitol. Felonies with uh, prison terms of tw- up to 20 years. We're looking and taking a priority with cases in which weapons were involved and cases in which destructive devices were involved. As people know through news reports, there were pipe bombs found outside the Capitol. The ATF is working on that. Metro Police is working on that. FBI is working on that to find that individual or individuals who planted those devices. In addition to that, we've also focused on an emphasis on assaults and batteries on police officers, both federal officers and local MPD officers that were assaulted. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what happened within the Capitol, and it's going to come into laser focus, I think, over the next weeks and days. And I think people are going to be shocked with some of the egregious contact that happened within the Capitol. We set up a strike force to focus on assaults on the media. Some of those rioters specifically targeted members of the media and assaulted them. So we have assigned specific prosecutors in our office to focus on those cases as well. Regardless of who the victim was, regardless of who the perpetrator was, we're treating all of these cases equally. And as U.S. Attorney Michael Sherwin, several of the Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol, where five people died, including one Capitol police officer, were seen with plastic handcuffs, often used by cops to make mass arrests and by the military in Afghanistan and Iraq to shackle prisoners. The so-called zip ties raised the question, were they looking to kidnap members of Congress? And some Internet posts even suggested the killing of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Special agent of the FBI, Stephen D'Antonio, says the investigation into motives is continuing. 
We are looking at all angles here. We're, we're, we're looking, we're interviewing everyone, interviewing witnesses and interviewing subjects as they get arrested around the country and within the district as well uh, to ascertain the true purpose um, of some of these individuals in the Capitol that day. The House of Representatives reported to be ready to vote on impeaching Trump tomorrow. It's part of a multi-pronged legal assault on the president before his term runs out in less than 200 hours, including using the 25th Amendment that allows removal of a president and barring the president from running again for office. A former judge, lawyer, and legal expert is Bill Blum. His article, Unequal Justice, used both the 25th Amendment and impeachment to hold Trump accountable, is at Progressive.org. The 25th Amendment and impeachment work together to box Trump in, to punish him, and to prevent him from running for office again. And that's where impeachment comes in. You only have a week left in the president's term, and people are saying, well, why would you impeach him? He's going to be out the door. Well, the reason you impeach him is, number one, the impeachable offense here is about as bad as it gets, inciting an insurrection. And number two... You can have a Senate trial of a federal official on impeachment after the federal official is out of office. We did that in 1876 with the Secretary of War, who resigned even before the House voted to impeach him. And then subsequently, the Senate held a trial that lasted four months. That might intervene or interfere with the first 100 days of the new Democratic president. The purpose of a second Trump impeachment is not so much to convict him of an impeachable offense, although you have to do that. It's to disqualify him from running for office in the future. One of the sanctions that follows from impeachment and conviction, should the Senate want to go that way, is disqualification from future office holding. And that vote only takes a majority. It's only happened three times before, all involving federal judges, the House could pass its impeachment article and hold it. It doesn't have to send it to the Senate immediately. It could hold that article, let the Biden administration take office, let it advance its policy agenda, let it get its principal appointees confirmed in the Senate, and only after that send the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Now, maybe that won't happen once the articles of impeachment are passed by the House. Maybe they would let it let it go, depending upon the behavior of Trump once he's out of office. Former judge, lawyer, and legal expert Bill Blum, his article, Unequal Justice, used both the 25th Amendment and impeachment to hold Trump accountable, is at Progressive.org. With the FBI stretching its tentacles across the nation, scooping up hundreds of alleged perpetrators of the attack on the Capitol, and the number is about 170 with hundreds more expected on the basis of 100,000 tips and bits of video that have been sent into the FBI, some right-wing personalities are apparently looking to jump ship from the QAnon followers who seem to have played an outsized role in organizing the assault. Internet agitator and occasionally crazed fascist Alex Jones was so angry the Q movement he momentarily slipped out of character. You said he was the Messiah. You said he was invincible. You said it was all over. They were all going to get Mo. Now, oh, he's part of a larger thing of Q. I will not suffer your Q people after this. I knew what you were day one, and I know what you are now, and I'm sick of it. I'm sick of all these witches and warlocks and pumpkin popsums and everything. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. 
Bob Ox, you, I can't talk to you anymore. Jesus, Lord, help me. Oh. Internet provocateur Alex Jones. Yale psychologist Bandy Lee, who edited the book The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, says the problem with the president is mental illness, and his illness is catching. If you have a situation where a severely mentally impaired person is in an influential position, the symptoms actually spread. The symptoms spread by accentuating pathologies in the population, as well as spreading to healthy individuals, such that a large segment of the population comes to carry the same symptoms as the primary person. Now, what symptoms are the most transmissible delusions paranoia and violence proneness are among them a lot of the emotional pressures will be lifted once he is gone for a while as people return to their normal baseline state they may recognize how misled they were and when that happens they will be hungry to be misled again because recognizing reality is quite traumatic. That's the reason why they couldn't face it in the first place. We have to be very careful that someone like Trump doesn't come along and harness that resistance. Removing him from his position will take care of a lot of it. What kind of madness is overcoming America? I describe fascism as not a political ideology, but mental pathology. and It's a form of pathology that carries with it characteristics of disorder and disease, not health. And so it will eventually be destructive and even self-destructive. So it's something we need to intervene with and not give it the same position as well-informed, healthy choices. It is important to distinguish pathology from health, the wide variation of health that human beings are capable of. And that is usually done by specialists experts in the field, mental health experts. That is why I have always felt that mental health experts critically needed to educate the public and inform the public about what we were seeing and to try to prevent this from spreading. Unfortunately, that was not possible because of the American Psychiatric Association, which came out with the strengthening of the Goldwater Rule. You may have heard of the phrase. It's a very obscure rule that doesn't, shouldn't really apply anymore, but they basically said that without examining an individual, you cannot say anything about them, even in the case of a national emergency. We had a mental health emergency, and the specialists could not speak up. How does, in your mind, the next 200 hours play out? Not well. I'm afraid that our lawmakers are underestimating the dangers and do not seem to be acting swiftly enough and severely enough to be able to contain the dangers. And the impeachment process is going to be a very dangerous period where the president retains all powers of the presidency and is going to be highly agitated and unstable. We have urged Congress to consult with us. We have issued a letter to them recommending processes and that guardrails be in place and that if guardrails are not possible, to submit the president to an involuntary psychiatric exam. We have not heard back from them. We've also issued a statement about the need for immediate removal from the powers of the presidency. 
our website. People can go to it from dangerouscase.org and see our statements. And there's a lot of educational material that I hope the public will be able to benefit from and to be able to protect itself. Yale psychologist Bandy Lee, who edited the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. While Bandy Lee says the president should be forced to undergo a mental evaluation, University of Memphis law professor Stephen Mulroy says to keep another Trump from arising is necessary to deal with an artifact of America's slaveholding past and abolish the Electoral College. That allows a minority to choose a president. If enough of the smaller states band together, and has happened at least five times in United States history. People have been arguing for electoral college uh, reform and abolition for many decades. And the reason it doesn't get anywhere is if you want to amend the federal constitution, you have to have three quarters of the state legislatures ratify it. Well, there are 10 or 12 states that are the swing states that get outsized attention from the candidates and outsized favors and attention during governance uh, once the candidates take uh, office catering to those swing states. Now, the swing states know they have it good, and they'll never agree to abolish the Electoral College because it takes away their special advantage. So if you've got 10 or 12 states from the get-go that just won't consider it, and you need 38 states in order to ratify it, you can see the problem. So getting a federal constitutional amendment, while theoretically possible, is politically a non-starter. Fortunately, there is a way around. There's a workaround that came up that people came up with about 10 years ago, and that's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And that is an agreement among state legislatures where they say, look, whoever wins the vote in my state, we promise to award all of our electors to the winner of the national popular vote, which every state legislature has the right to do under the Constitution. Now, the ingenious thing about the NPV Interstate Compact is it doesn't take effect until enough states have signed on to control 270 electoral college votes and thus the presidency. In the last 10 years, we've gone from zero to, I think, almost 200 electoral college votes being um, controlled. I think 16 states have signed on so far. So just a few more states and it'll become effective And I predict in our lifetime, the Electoral College won't be abolished, but it will be rendered harmless, if you will, thanks to the Interstate Compact. Fixing this, as you just described, spark civil unrest, which was maybe unexpected, because you're preventing people from holding on to the past. I suppose it's possible, and you're always going to have some traditionalists that take offense at the idea of reforming the Electoral College. But I don't think we're going to have January 6th-style riots in the streets over it. That's a phenomenon peculiar to Trump. Just remember, we've reformed our electoral system many times in the past. We've gone from no presidential elections to elections. We've gone from state legislatures electing U.S. senators to direct election of U.S. senators. We had the civil rights revolution with respect to expanding voting rights. The Republic has survived. We haven't had tanks in the streets over it. People are very much holding on to the past. A lot of that goes away, hopefully, if Trump goes away. University of Memphis law professor Stephen Mulroy. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Families of loved ones killed by the NYPD 
Advocates and legal experts testified today at the New York City Council oversight hearing of the Committee on Public Safety, responding to Governor Cuomo's executive order requiring municipalities to put forward police reform and reinvention plans. City Council and advocates for police reform say the NYPD has taken over the process, refusing input for the community and especially the family members of people killed by the cops who have found justice nearly impossible to find. Some of those loved ones spoke today. Good evening, everyone. My name is Hawaba. I'm the mother of Mohammed Ba, who was killed on September 25th, 2012, in his own home. My son Mohammed Ba was an honor student, taxi driver, hard workers. He was loved from his family and the neighbors. Mohammed was not feeling well. I sound like he was not happy. I flew all the way from Guinea to New York to help him. I called and I want to get in an ambulance. In sending the ambulance, the police came first. I told them I don't call police. Go away. They told me this is how the system works which is why we need to change the system. The police came first, Edwin Matteo, Andrew Grace, Michael Gray, shoot Mohammed eight times in his own home. Edwin Matteo fired the last shot at close range when my son was already on the ground. This is happening on and on. And the NYPD who model my son stay collecting the NYPD paycheck without holding any liability. Fourth, we need accountability for our youth one. The NYPD cannot help the black and brown people they should not respond for the emotional distress when somebody is suffering. It's not make no sense for someone would come and can unless to discriminate the person who suffering and kill. Officer Matteo, Andrew Craig, Michael Lisitra are still working and collecting the paycheck for the from NYPD, they should be fired immediately. There is, there is so many things you can learn from my son. Sorry. First, we need accountability. The officers who model my son and all the other, please, they should be fired immediately from the NYPD. I need you continue pushing for everything defunding the NYPD. That money should go in our community need, like mental health, education, housing, and other necessary why our family need for safety. And that is one of the uh, mothers of the uh, folks who were um, victims of police violence. Um, police and some city leaders attended the hearings and blamed the delays on the complex process. They say they're moving it along. It's the new city chief of patrol, Juanita Holmes. 
memo to all PSB commands, um, pretty much an operational strategy consisting of five pillars, one of which challenges each commander to reimagining, to reimagining neighborhood policing by developing creative ways to engage the community. With that, uh, I have the pleasure of saying that Deputy Inspector Terrell Anderson, who's commanding officer to 7-3 Precinct, did just that. Uh, how did he do that? We try and think of this as a community solution, working with the community together. And that's NYPD Chief of Patrol Juanita Holmes, the Director of Communities United for Police Reform, is Ju Yun Kang. Uh, Ju Hyun Kang. I'm using my time instead to respond to what I believe are misleading and false statements by the administration this morning. Specifically, the city's process uh, really has been NYPD-led. It actually does not matter that the first deputy mayor's office's name is there or that his staff are there. The NYPD has been driving the entire city's uh, reform process, which basically makes it illegitimate. Um, and the moment that we're in right now is that what will happen, as you know, is that the city is required to send a plan to Governor Cuomo by April 1st, which means the city council needs to act by March. And we are in the middle of January, which means that there is no time actually for significant uh, direction or guidance in such a plan. And it's a catch-22 that the council has been set up in, I believe, where had the council been engaged earlier, had community organizations, especially those with longstanding history around police reform, uh, been able to help guide some of this process, we would not be in a position where on in March you'll have the choice of either accepting or rejecting the mayor's plan and having not only the NYPD potentially lose budget monies, but other agencies in the city potentially lose budget monies. And so I just want to name that this is actually in this moment a setup um, regardless. Second thing is that there is really no meaningful engagement that's happened with families, as you've heard from families today. Um, and the question actually isn't fundamentally about engagement, it's a question of power. The NYPD and police unions have outsized power in New York and too often unilaterally reject or block discipline. They reject or block policy changes, and they control the media narrative, and too often not only mislead, but actually just lie. And that's Ju Yun Kang, Director of Communities United for Police Reform. And finally, Governor Andrew Cuomo again expanded the vaccine eligibility requirements in New York to include anyone 65 or over. Cuomo said Tuesday the state's following new federal guidance issued by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. People who are age 75 and up and a much longer list of workers, including transit employees, grocery clerks, teachers, police officers, firefighters, and others became eligible to get the vaccine Monday. New York is increasing access to an already short supply of doses being distributed through an overtaxed system some users have found time-consuming. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, January 12, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.